Hello, friends, and thank you for joining me on another episode of Anti Culture. This week's episode is a special one, less focused on culture per se, and more focused on an issue that has been on my heart for many years the issue of human trafficking. In 2013, I was a part of a choir group that sang at a conference focused on this issue in Calgary to raise awareness about the tragedy that is modern day slavery. If you're brand new to this topic, I would encourage you to listen on. Human trafficking is a large term which encompasses everything from escort services, massage parlors, child sexual abuse and kidnapping, and much more. It's a commonly known fact, perhaps not very common, that there are more enslaved people in the world today than there were during the transatlantic slave trade. And the consequences today are unfortunately a lot more dire. At the conference where I was singing, there was a presentation given by one of our guests today, which brought immense grief to my soul. I don't recall another time in my life where I felt so heartbroken for an issue that's so far removed from myself, and I want to invite you into a similar space today, as uncomfortable as that might sound. I also want to offer you a sense of hope, with stories that will inspire you to take action, speak about what's happening a little more, and be vigilant of those around you. Anticulture is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. Check out more shows like this one, including Modern Manhood, hosted by Herman Viegas, one of my favorites on the network, that explores the modern concept of masculinity and how what it means to be a man has changed in today's world. As men, we're bad at sharing our experiences, so join the conversation for a change and check this one out. You can find it and others like it at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Anticulture is also brought to you by ATB. Through transformation, ATB is bringing together world-class talent to change how humans experience technology in banking. By combining cutting-edge technology and banking, it's just one more way ATB is working on being relentlessly inventive for Albertans' greater good. Visit atbalphabeta.com to learn how ATB is transforming banking. As probably goes without saying, this week's episode is not appropriate for underage listeners, and I would recommend that adults with children listen to this episode privately and have a discussion with their children afterwards. I wanted to dedicate an episode of Anticulture this season to the complex, intimidating, and often dark world of trafficking, particularly in regards to sex trafficking and how it happens locally. Today we're talking with Kelsey Wind, the director of The Walk, an outreach and education organization that focuses on the local trafficking that happens right here in the province of Alberta. We'll be exploring how people get into the industry, what levels exist, and what we can do to play a role. We'll also be talking with Brian McConaughey, the founder of Ratnak International, which is based out of Cambodia, for a larger picture of what's happening in the world today and how children as young as six and sometimes younger get caught up in an international ring of criminal services without help and without a voice. Thank you for tuning in to Anticulture as we explore this special topic. Our first guest today is Kelsey Wind. She's based here in Calgary, and this issue has been a large driving point of her life, leading her to tackle and be involved with what is happening right under our noses here in Alberta. Here's what she had to say. 
So I have been involved with the walk for the last six and a half years. I'm currently the executive director and have been for the last three-ish years. But yeah, basically what we do in a nutshell is uh, we go into massage parlors and on the stroll in Calgary and we intentionally build friendships with the men, women and youth that are involved in Calgary sex trade. Crazy. And it's so weird to even hear you say Calgary's sex trade. Like Mm -hmm. I was born and raised here and that's not something that you hear every day. And you mentioned a few different layers there. So maybe could you just break that down for us? What's the difference between the stroll and the Mm -hmm. massage parlor and what's actually happening and what is Calgary sex trafficking? Yeah, Calgary sex trade, believe it or not, is rampant, honestly. Mm. Like the last estimate that I heard about a year ago was that there was around roughly 3,000 women involved in Calgary sex trade. You know, and so when you break that up, um, that's like all different levels, you know, that doesn't include stuff like porn, but you talk about escorting agencies, massage parlors, strip clubs, sugar babies and brothels, right? right? So those are all kind of different layers of the sex trade that are active in Calgary. But yeah, there's definitely some in Calgary that are more prominent than others in terms of population. Wow, that's crazy. And is there, I guess for people who are new to the topic, because I think it's easy to imagine There's this ring of all these activities that are happening kind of under the same umbrella. Is it all organized by a couple people at the top or are they all kind of separate entities? Is there any connection between those different things? Yeah, I would say there's definitely some, a lot of organized crime, whether or not they're all connected. I think each ring kind of does their own thing. There's some that are connected throughout Canada and even the States or Mm -hmm. even internationally. But again, there's cultural trafficking rings or there's local trafficking rings. Um, Hell's Angels is a big known one as well, where they operate a lot of prostitution activity within North America. So there's lots of different rings, but in general, they all kind of flow into one another. So for example, if a girl, you know, is doing porn shoots um, and she knows that she can make more doing escorting, it's very easy for her to slip into that or be coerced into that kind of activity. I think we talked about this when we met earlier this week, but there's kind of different entry points for people to actually get into it. And then it kind of evolves over time. And by the Mm -hmm. time they're actually a part of legitimately being trafficked, they almost don't notice that they are in a lot of cases. And I think maybe that's kind of what happens with a lot of the prostitution in Calgary too, Mm -hmm. is it starts kind of slow. And then perhaps this woman is unknowingly in a relationship with a pimp and the relationship grows and then they realize that they're being sold out for these services. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very common thing we hear, the boyfriending experience, you know, where young girls will be groomed, whether it's in school, at the movie theater, wherever, you know, if they have vulnerabilities, traffickers basically just look to exploit those vulnerabilities, Mm. whether it's, you know, financial need, addiction, they use a lot of attention and bringing like showering of gifts as a process of grooming. And then basically what happens is they incur an immediate debt where the pimp or the boyfriend says, oh, like I've just actually like paid for all these things for you. You know, now you need to pay me back and this is how you're going to do it by selling your body for me for however long I say. Right. You know, so that's usually kind of how it starts, particularly in like local standards here. Trafficking is a little bit different. Yeah. When you get into like places like Southeast Asia or trafficking also happens locally in Canada as well, but maybe it looks a little bit different. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. just somebody grabbing somebody uh, from their bed. It does happen, but less so here in Canada. Yeah. And just, I guess, focusing a little bit more on the the prostitution side, I guess, in your experience, do the men that kind of control these rings or maybe start grooming a female, are they aware of what they're doing or is it sometimes 
I guess, is it more of an organized structure in their mind or do they just kind of naturally fall into it? Like, how does that happen? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not an expert in this area, but in general, they know exactly what they're doing, right? right. Like they get perks of whatever, whether it's money, drugs, they get some of the girls' services on the side. But in general, it's about money. You yeah. know, how much money can I make off of one girl, especially if she's a virgin and she's young? How many times can I sell her over and over and over wow. again? And, and that's just crazy to me yeah. like that we can sell people's bodies mm-hmm. with absolutely no regard to what it does to them. So how did you first hear about human trafficking, specifically sex trafficking? And why do you think it's important to be involved in the fight against it? Yeah, I mean, this journey for me started about 10 years ago. I got invited to like a social justice group for my friend. And we watched a video about sex trafficking in Thailand. Hmm. And I always had this heart for justice, but I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, You know, so I'd been on this basically journey of self-exploration of, okay, what am I doing with my life? You know, Mm -hmm. I wanted to have meaning and purpose and started Mm. this radical journey for me of reaching out and building intentional friendships with the people involved in the sex trade, whether it's the pimps or the ladies, and intentionally loving them and giving them exit resources. Crazy. So that that experience of actually being brought to Thailand is kind of what opened your eyes to Mm. what's going on. Yeah. And how did you make the connection that that was something that's happening here at home? Yeah. Again, like having been exposed to it overseas for a good three years, like I knew what to look for. I also knew that my culture and my home was not immune to this. Mm. Um, And then as I started to dig deeper, I soon began to realize it is, it is rampant in our society because we have hyper-sexualized our culture and that feeds into the sex trade. Which is kind of scary too, because it almost normalizes those activities. And I know Mm -hmm. that's been a lot of rhetoric that people have been talking about, like even the debate of how to legalize prostitution and Mm -hmm. how many of these women are willingly doing this. And that's a big part of the discussion that I think allows people to brush everything else under the rug because it seems like it's kind of been made innocent because we've hypersexualized everything. Now that you are positioned and you're so exposed to all this stuff that's happening locally, do you often encounter, I guess, any kind of blockages because you haven't been involved in that world or maybe you can't relate to those experiences has that come up quite a lot for you or? Absolutely. I mean, um, for anybody volunteering in this kind of work, you know, there's always that barrier of like, if you haven't experienced what these ladies have walked through, it can be really tough to relate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I never felt like that was something that was going to hinder me. I, yeah. I had to be able to push through that. And the biggest thing that helped me again was looking at people as people because people are not a project. Yeah. You know, people have stories, Yeah. Totally. you know, and basically I want to share myself with somebody and I want to build a friendship that is healthy and yeah. one that they can lean on for support if they so choose, you That's know? Awesome. Um, and so again, and also being a mom, you know, I have that avenue where I can relate a lot with the ladies because the majority of the women we meet are moms, mm. single moms who are trying to survive and trying to give their kids the best life possible, but they've been sucked into a world full of sexual violence. Yeah. Wow. That's shocking and hard to think about. It's not something that's easy to imagine unless you've been involved in it for so long. So for those listening that maybe are unfamiliar with the topic, maybe let's revisit those different layers of what trafficking is. And maybe you can just break down for us what each of them kind of entails and I guess kind of how prevalent that is in the city today. I mean, what we know of, like we specialize in reaching out to the ladies in massage parlors in Calgary. 
And so of that, like we've done a lot of cross-referencing and resources, and we know that there's about 50 plus as a rough estimate of parlors specifically in Calgary. And within there, there'll be anywhere from one to four ladies um, that will be working out of there. And Um, does that mean that those women in the massage parlors were like taken against their will to work there mm -hmm. and perform sexual acts or is there... Some of them. Yeah. yeah, We definitely have reason to believe that there is definitely cases of trafficking. Okay. Um, Some of the minors as well, but many of these ladies, particularly in the parlors, they're coming from places like Southeast Asia, you know, because they've been lured by a trafficker who says, you know, I'll get you here. I'll get you a decent job. You know, all you have to do is go and get this massage license, go work in a parlor, you know, Mm -hmm. and you can send back thousands of dollars back home to support your family. Right. You know, so for girls who are either brand new to this, they have either been promised a better job than a massage parlor, or they've already worked in a parlor at home, come here um, and decided to do this here because of the language barrier, the culture barrier. So they often feel stuck, even though they could technically leave the parlor. Mm -hmm. Many times they feel trapped because of the financial burden or because, you know, their pimp or manager will often say like, oh, like I'm going to shame you. I'm going to tell your family what you're doing back home, you know, in order to send money to them or I'll hurt your family because I know where they live. But again, a lot of times these ladies would rather put up with sexual assault and violence so that their family does not have to suffer. Mm -hmm. How do you learn to differentiate between a place that's trafficking people and just a normal massage Mm -hmm. place? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in general... The massage parlors that we go into, again, we cross-reference on certain websites that we can say, oh, okay, yeah, like this ad is up here. So yes, this is what's going on here. Now, Mm. um, it doesn't mean everybody working in that parlor is trafficked. But again, you can be willingly working in the sex trade and still be sexually exploited. Right. So we always try That's and make that point. differentiation of trafficking is, you know, moving somebody against their will for exploitative right. reasons, for monetary reasons. But sexual exploitation, you know, abusing your power over somebody, whether it's survival sex or, again, exploiting them. That's not okay either. Nobody yeah. should have to sell their body in order to put food on the table. Right. So that's often where we come from that point of view. So again, to break it down, again, porn, porn is very normalized. Everybody knows what it is. A lot of people are addicted to it these mm-hmm. days. But again, porn is the gateway to every other part of the sex trade. So wow. again, Pornhub is like a multi-million dollar industry. Yeah. You know, so whether some girls are trafficked into porn, which we know happens a lot. But again, you get people addicted to porn. They need harder and harder stuff to live out those fantasies. So they start reaching out to the sex trade or in strip clubs and all that kind of stuff to fulfill those fantasies and to get the kind of gratification that they're looking for. Right. Again, strip clubs, quite common as well. We've got four of those in Calgary. And And again, I guess, is the strip clubs a place also where you see trafficking or more so just the Absolutely. Yeah, we know it happens. Again, in Calgary specifically, like, the majority of the prostitution you'll see here in Calgary will be more, I, I hate to call it choice prostitution, but again, either it's addicted choice, poverty choice, those kind right. of choices, right? Like not necessarily trafficking, but definitely yeah. like some of those other vices that drive women into the sex trade. Right. That makes yeah. sense. And then escorting, again, like lots of high-end escorting in Calgary. You'll see an increase in prostitution activity during high times such as Stampede, Mm -hmm. you know, because the demand is driven up because of all of the volunteerism, basically, um, that drives it. And again, like massage parlors, some people call it massage parlors slash brothels. Again, massage parlors is erotic massage, basically happy ending type stuff. Whereas brothels, again, like women will sleep with men or have intercourse or whatever. 
Yeah. So that's kind of a little okay. bit of differentiation there. Okay. And then strolls. So standing on a street corner waiting for cars to pick you up. Right. Um, that's classified as a stroll. And then the other last category is sugar babies. So we okay. often find a lot of students will kind of start in the sex trade by either stripping or starting as a sugar baby, basically mm. starting as arm candy for like a thousand dollars, you wow. know, but then it kind of starts to escalate from there depending on what their financial needs are or how vulnerable they are to being coerced into something harder. And is that something that's pretty common in Calgary, like the sugar baby aspect of things? Yeah, very much in colleges, you know, university students, that kind of thing. And how do you keep an eye on or track that kind of thing? It's very hard. Even police, you know, they don't have an accurate record because so many people do not come forward about the abuse that they suffer right. in this this kind of line of work, you know. Um, I don't like to call it work, but yeah, in, in this area, you know, there's a lot of shame wrapped in it as well. Like nobody grows up and says, oh, I want to sell my body yeah, <laughs> so I can survive. Nobody right. wakes up and says that one day. Yeah, totally. That's such a good point. So talking about the massage parlors, you mentioned there's kind of that scenario where there might be someone from a home country in Southeast Asia, let's say, that will take a girl that's already been working in the parlors or maybe someone in a vulnerable position and they'll offer an opportunity in Canada that will help make them more money. How does that process work? How do foreign workers end up in Calgary in these parlors? What's the process and how do, how do they surpass the law, I guess, in doing that? Definitely. I mean, I'm not an expert, but from what I do understand, again, so for example, if we're talking about, you know, ladies in Southeast Asia or whatever, and they come from poor families, you know, and there's not a lot of opportunity in their home country, there'll be local recruiters that look to exploit those vulnerabilities, such as Mm. poverty. And they'll promise the girls good paying jobs over in Canada, you know, and they'll say, oh, we have big, rich cities, you know, in Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, come, you know, we'll get you a visa. And then you come and you do this massage course course to basically certify you as a massage therapist in Canada. And then you can start working in a massage business, you know. So some of it is coercion and some of it, the girls have an idea of kind of what they're getting into Mm -hmm. and they're willing to do it to sacrifice just for their families, right? Like they want to provide their family with a better life and a better opportunity. And sometimes they feel stuck and like, I have to provide, so I just have to do this. And then they end up putting up with a lot of sexual violence because of it. Wow. And that becomes their everyday life without 12 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. So the walk focuses on the parlor side of things and also the stroll side of things. What are the action items that you take to address those two issues happening in the city? Yeah. I mean, again, our first priority is to honor and build intentional friendships with these ladies. Mm -hmm. You know, so for example, we go in and we have gifts as icebreakers to conversation and just get to know them. Like, again, each person has value and worth and we want to take the time needed to get to know who they are and to cherish them and to build them up. But also, too, we're there to offer spiritual support, such as prayer, if they'd like. Or again, when the opportunity is ready and when it's right, we offer exit resources if we feel a girl Mm. would like to leave. So we would like to connect them with local resources to get new employment or to get, you know, help in a recovery home if needed or drug addiction issues, you know, giving them resources for that kind of stuff. But again, we're there to be kind of the first point of contact for when they're ready because we know a lot of ladies don't currently see themselves as being sexually exploited uh, because they just feel like they're doing it to 
meet a need and then they'll yeah. be out. But often that's not how it happens. Right. And what's the age group of the people in the parlors usually that you encounter? Yeah, usually it's between like the majority is between 30 to 50 years old. Okay. But there definitely are some younger girls. We've seen a few that we have questioned if they've been minors or not. Okay. We know what happens, but in the majority are between 30 and 50. When you first walk into the parlor with that intention, are these women easily accessible? Do they speak English? How do you kind of mm-hmm. break that barrier? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of fun challenges. Yeah. Uh, again, like if they don't know who we are, I mean, we've been reaching out to the massage parlors for four, four years now, mm. you know, so those that we have built a good friendship with, they know who we are, but it's quite transient still, the okay. massage parlors. So if a lady has never met us before, she's quite standoffish, but yeah. we go back month after month after month and we're very, very respectful and very gentle. We don't want to give them any reason um, mm-hmm. to be threatened by us or their madams to be threatened by us. So our heart is to always honor or if they're busy, then we leave, right. you know, but if they want to talk, like we are all ears, right? just really low and slow. And it's gentleness and persistence that will reach these women where they need to be reached at um, mm. because a lot of them have never experienced gentleness and kindness. So it, it's an honor to be able to sit with these women. I guess the legislation around having these type of massage parlors, is it 100% legal in Canada? What's the status right now? And Yeah, so it's legal to own your own massage business, but it is illegal to solicit sexual services. So there's a lot of gray area right now okay. um, in terms of massage parlors specifically. Yeah. But in Canada, we follow the Nordic model or they call it the Canada's version of the Nordic model, basically. Yeah. So, so it's illegal to purchase or solicit sexual services, but but prostitution is legal. You just can't right. buy. So they're targeting the Johns, that which is sense. great. Yeah. But unless the program is being implemented properly, which it isn't, it's very difficult to see change. Yeah, that makes sense. So how aware are, for example, the local police to these specific parlors and are they monitoring the behavior of what's happening? Do they know that these women have been trafficked? Yeah, I'm really like, it's, it's quite sad. Like the police are, are so busy. They do great work, but it's, they have no idea, honestly, like we're starting to make some good connections now with some Mm. local officers, but the majority of the police force have no idea because they haven't been trained. They haven't been told, they haven't been made aware. Um, They're so overrun with the day-to-day issues, you know, of civilians that this really gets overlooked. So Vice specifically works in Calgary. And the last I heard, they had two people appointed to sex trafficking prevention in Calgary, but they can only help minors because okay. that's all they can afford right now. Okay. You know, um, resources and awareness are, are quite slim. Again, we pray for change in this city. Yeah. We want to see freedom and, you know, sexual exploitation come to an end. We want to see these women liberated. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. It sounds like a huge undertaking, but it sounds like you're chipping away at things. And by the sounds of it too, there's a lot of organizations in our city specifically that are targeting this kind of independently, mm-hmm. which is pretty huge. Mm-hmm. What else is there besides the walk currently? Yeah, there are a ton of fabulous resources in this city. So Chill is another one, Next Step Ministries, Streetlight, the Joy Smith Foundation, Reset, Her Victory, Shift, Not In My City, and also Castle, which is out of the UFC. Again, we all kind of do some different stuff, but Mm -hmm. we all have very similar hearts in terms of we want to support and love these ladies and we want to see them free. 
Is there a story of a rescue or maybe something that's more hope-filled that you've experienced during your time in this work? And is there's one you could share with us today? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this actually just happened back in you know the spring or whatever, but we were walking into this parlor and we're just striking up a conversation with one of the ladies. And um, sometimes when we have a lot of favor, we get to like swap pictures. So we'll show pictures on our phone of each other's kids or just cool. sharing life stories, you know, with one another. And so we were chatting with this one lady and yeah. I noticed when she was swiping on her phone, you know, there was a picture of a cross. I was like, oh, like, do you go to church? And she's like, yeah, I do. I've been a Christian for 23 years. Wow. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's crazy. Tell me more about that. And there's a big language barrier in right. between. Like, this is all through translation in Mandarin. Okay. You know, but you know, it was wild. We asked her if she wanted to pray, you know, and she's like, yeah, yeah, come. And she took us to one of the mm. back rooms in the parlors. Wow. And we're like, oh, do you want to hold hands? She's like, no, 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 no. I want to kneel down on the massage bed and pray. And so we had this radical moment. We got to pray with a lady in a massage parlor, in a massage room, on the massage bed, uh, (laughs) praying to the God of heaven about protection for her. And she was speaking about how it was not a coincidence that we had met that night, you know, and just wild. So we've seen her a couple more times, but... Yeah, like there's a lot of questions that come up as well for me and that of like, man, like, Lord, how do we reach this woman's heart? Like she knows you, but she's still here in this parlor. Like what's going on in her life that she still feels like she has to be here? Yeah, You know, it was a radical, radical breakthrough for us. We've never had anything like that. And it honestly, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to get to know these ladies. And yeah. so to be able to have that experience of praying with her in a massage room, on a massage bed, like wild. If you want to get involved with The Walk, they are currently in the midst of merging with The Chill Initiative to become Emerge Forward. You can keep an eye on the merger at Chill's website, chill.community, or you can reach out to me for more details. Our next guest comes fresh off a trip to Cambodia on one of countless trips to this trafficking hotspot. I wanted to shine the light on this issue from an international perspective and hear from an organization that first caught onto my heartstrings. Brian McConaughey is the founder of Ratnak International, an organization that works collaboratively in Cambodia to be a catalyst for transformation through a focus on empowering exploited people and addressing the system that exploits them. Here to share all about the vision and how you can get involved is their founder, who I'm happy to introduce on the show today. Well, thanks for joining us from Vancouver. So why don't you just uh, tell us about yourself a bit, uh, give us a little bit of an introduction and tell us about where you're at now and how long you've been with Ratanak and what your role in the story is. Sure. My name is Brian McConaughey. By trade, I am a forensic scientist. I was a weapons specialist with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for 23 years or thereabouts. And in a holiday that went really badly wrong many years ago, I ended up on the Thai-Cambodian border being shelled and shot at. And that has a way of piquing your interest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. And I was introduced to Cambodia. And uh, the more I, I learned and read, the more appalling it became. And I realized I had to engage in Cambodia. So I continued in the RCMP as a forensic scientist for another 18 years before finally getting to the stage where I needed to leave the police to work full time on behalf of those being trafficked in Cambodia. So initially as a charity, Ratanak International is the charity I founded and it's named after a little girl uh, who died because no medicine was allowed in the country for her. So my first job was to smuggle medication into the country, which was very politically incorrect for a member of the RCMP when there was a UN embargo on the country, but I did it. 
So we did a whole bunch of medical programs through the end of the Civil War period. But then while still in the RCMP, I was assigned two files that were very impactful for me. One was Willie Picton, the pig farm. This is a file in BC where a serial killer was taking women from downtown Eastside, Vancouver, uh, sexually assaulting them, murdering them, dismembering them and disposing of them. So he had many victims and I ended up responsible for all his freezer contents. So all the heads, feet, hands, dismembered body parts, whatever. And that was a huge wake up call for me because I had really no exposure to the world of prostitution before that. And I didn't realize the end game of prostitution and how brutal it was and how manipulated these young women were deliberately drugged by pimps, deliberately controlled. They didn't have a chance basically. So my heart kind of broke for them in a new way as I gained an understanding of, of prostitution in Canada. At the same time, I was assigned a, a file from Vancouver City Police to assist them with a Canadian pedophile case. And so I had done years and years of homicides, but nothing prepared me for child sex assault videos, uh, which was the evidence. Uh, they wanted me to look at this evidence and tell them what country the, the kids were from. The kids were manifestly from Cambodia. So that was a really raw nerve issue for me with my own adopted kids from Cambodia and my love for Cambodia. And really, there's no way of describing what it looks like and sounds like to have uh, seven, eight, nine-year-olds being assaulted uh, by a adult male. And that was kind of the end of my police career because I realized nobody was helping these kids. And because of the genocide in Cambodia, social services had collapsed. Families were shattered. There was really no protection for these kids. And I realized other people can do forensic science and do police work in Canada. I needed to step up to the plate and deal with these kids. So that's what initially got me involved in the horrible world of human trafficking, which has now become center of my life. Wow. That is a crazy story. I think what comes to mind too is just thinking of the equipping that being a forensic scientist would have for that type of issue. And I think just it's interesting how seeing that and being exposed to the prostitution world is the thing that broke you. I imagine that you saw so many horrible things over your career. And I imagine that a lot of people in this field do to some extent get a bit desensitized. So it's interesting that that's something that really spoke to you. Yeah, you're right. I'd seen a lot of violence and a lot of killings, but nothing really prepared me for the world of prostitution as seen through a serial killer's file. And so that was a real challenge to me on the Cambodian context, seeing kids being abused that there was no protections for. Like it's, it's, it's totally different to Canada. There's no social services or at that stage, there was no social services. There was no one to protect right. them, which is why guys were flying in by the hundreds, by the thousands to do this. So it was pretty shattering. And I viewed myself as really being a forensic scientist in the RCMP. That was my career. You know, it kind of becomes part of your identity. That's who I was. I had no idea that 22, 23 years of the RCMP was simply the training required to deal with what I'm doing now. And that's really what it's turned into. It's just, it's just being able to cope with some really ugly stuff. And I wouldn't be doing it if, if it was all downers. I mean, there's, there's tremendous yeah. joy in the middle of this when young lives are, are rescued and, and are given freedom again. But it's, it's a pretty hard road to get there. And so, that file that you were assigned with the child case, was that based in Vancouver? Or was that just an online? No, that was, a, that was a Vancouver case. Okay. And he would travel over to Asia to assault children and video his assaults. And then he would um, come back and sort of I guess gloat over all the videos because he had lots of videos of torture, sex abuse in Canada as well. That's how they originally arrested him. 
for torturing downtown Eastside women. Really a psychopath in so many ways. So when they arrested him, by chance they discovered among his 60 plus victims on video were these little Asian kids. Uh, so that's where the whole thing with Cambodia oh, started. So we went through the adult tapes obviously to figure out what he was doing to people but then we got into these little prepubescent seven, eight, nine-year-olds which mm -hmm. was appalling. Ugh, yeah, that's really heartbreaking. And what extent can the RCMP be involved in something like that when you realize that there's an international aspect to it? Well, as federal policing in Canada, it's, it's their responsibility to be doing international files but no particular fault of theirs. They are not skilled, needless to say, in backstreet Cambodia or other countries. And so, they normally work through liaison officers in embassies and try and pull files together. But generally speaking, embassy staff, uh, be it diplomatic staff or liaison officers from the police, they don't do a lot of hands-on backstreet investigations. They're working with their counterparts on the Thai, the Cambodian, the Vietnamese, the whatever country they're inside. So they're doing kind of the cocktail circuit and the diplomatic stuff. Very few people in our context with these files knew Backstreet Brothel Cambodia. And because I'd been doing charity work for years, I had my hooks into some pretty dark places in Cambodia and was able to leverage networks and friends to find the crime scenes and actually search for crime scenes myself and find them, identify the crime scenes and then from there look at identifying and finding the kids. And so it really was a marriage of charitable skills and traditional police investigation skills. Uh, so the RCMP had the police investigation skills but not a means to apply them in Cambodia. And I, as a just the way it landed, I had both. I had the policing skills as well as the skills in Cambodia. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. It, it definitely seems like it was meant to be. Oh, absolutely. And it led to yeah. a whole bunch of other files. And people kept saying to me, what's your technique? How are you How are you successfully getting the evidence? And I mean, every file was totally different. And so many of the results were, I mean, they, they were miracles as far as I was concerned. I mean, I approach this as a Christian. It's, it's a faith thing for me. I think you kind of have to believe in something bigger than yourself to do this any longer in a couple yeah. of months because it'll destroy you otherwise. But I remember in one of the first files, going back and showing results of the investigation and, and a senior police officer kind of leaned across the table and he just said, he said, you know, all we wanted was a country and I was giving him GPS locations of the crime scenes and the names of the kids. Hmm. And he That's said, amazing. You know, uh, he said, How, you ever believe there's a God? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, actually, I'm functioning on that premise or I wouldn't be doing this at all. Right. <laughs> but, but yeah, it, they're really hard files. They're multi-jurisdictional. They're complex. And I've been privileged to work on a whole bunch of them successfully, which is, which is really cool. Yeah, that really is incredible. So can you unpack a little bit about now that Ratanak is an operating organization, what exactly are you guys doing in Cambodia? Mm. Actually, let me backtrack just a little bit first. Sure. We started off working the child cases based on North American investigations that would take us to Cambodia and that led to Ratnak being involved in child rescue, child rehabilitation programs in Cambodia. These were kids that had been sold by the Vietnamese mafia or organized crime and were being pimped out, pimped out by their parents or whatever else. I mean, just grotesque stuff. And so we worked with other organizations to actually start projects and start organizations. And then once they were up and running and doing well, we kind of walked away. I'm not interested in empire building. And so those are independent programs now that are working exclusively with children. We moved on to the much bigger trade and that's the trade of late teens and up. That's uh, a massive, massive trade in terms of what happens to poor Cambodian young women and girls. 
because it's a vulnerable society and it's close to China, they have a they have a big problem, particularly with China and trafficking. China, because of one-child policy and gender preference, are 35 million females short. So there's 35 million guys without any prospect of girlfriends or wives. That right there is a recipe for the most massive form of human trafficking. And so China is going and buying up every vulnerable female they can find in the smaller vulnerable countries around them, Cambodia being sort of ground zero of this. And so we started to get phone calls through a helpline that we had participated in setting up where, you know, these young women were calling and saying, my name is so-and-so. I thought I was getting a nanny's job, but they gave me a thing called a passport I don't understand. And then they stuck me on a plane and I think I might be in China. And I was introduced yesterday to my 60-year-old husband. I Nobody asked me about this, but apparently I'm married. I don't find him sexually attractive. So, he's raped and beaten me and he's already shared me with 14 different guys. Can you get me out of here? Like, how do you deal with a phone call like that? Yeah. And we started to get those kind of, of references or family members saying, my daughter went off for a job and she thinks she's in China and she's being horribly abused. Can you get her back? And so that launched us into a whole new area of participating with the Cambodian government in negotiating for these lives to get them back. So the centerpiece of what we do now is actually finding and getting young women out of Malaysia, out of China, where they're enslaved, either for labor slavery or sexual slavery, and get them back to Cambodia. So, at least get them to a country where they know the language, where they can feel at home. And we've got a high sort of security building in Phnom Penh, the capital city of Cambodia, and we whisk them right from the airport once we negotiate and get the papers to get them back. We get them right from the airport into rehabilitation and reintegration. And it's an astonishing thing. Just last week, I was there and watched two young women arrive from from China. And I, I mean, I've seen a lot, but I had never seen the kind of trauma that I saw in those two absolutely profound young women that were terrified, even on the van ride from the airport. I mean, they're terrified. There's no conversation because they don't know if they're being re-trafficked yet. And then we get them into our center where they're secure and there's this mix of joy and they're thrilled. They're safe. Somebody's cooking a meal for them. They haven't eaten well in perhaps two years in China. Their teeth may be rotten because they haven't been given toothbrushes. They don't even have underwear. I mean, they're used as slaves. So, they're not well cared for. That's an understatement. And they're finally with our staff that love and care for them and nurture them and, and get them into therapy. But initially, they're terrified. They don't know if they're being re-trafficked. They don't trust us either. Everybody's lied to them. So, why would they believe us? And it's amazing to be in a room with people that skittish that terrified and there's this mixture of joy and then panic and terror that they think, oh my goodness, I, I've been re-trafficked. This is all a ruse. This is all lies. And then they relax again and they realize, oh, that person was kind for me and they'll embrace them and they'll, they'll be just overjoyed and then they flip back into terror and it's like all over the map. And to see humans in that condition, it, you know, I was just thinking last week, like what on earth has been done to these young women to actually create that kind of mental instability? So, it's the bar is very high for us. It's very, very difficult work, but there's huge amount of joy too. As we see young lives rebuilt, there's a whole bunch of young women in Cambodia now uh, owning businesses, owning properties, married uh, with children, as well just as, as you can be after this. And they refer to me as dad, which is the greatest honor I have in life that they would, they would call me dad. But the most exciting thing just over a week ago was having dinner with two of our alumni both university grads, both with good careers, both moving ahead with life, just just going for it in terms of life. And for the first time, they didn't refer to me as dad. They referred to me as Brian. 
And that was a thrill for me because even though it's wonderful, emotionally warm and fuzzy when they call me dad, it's still submissive, right? It's still subservient. I'm still the, the bigger player and they're the little one. But these two started to refer to me as Brian because ironically, both of them are working in anti-human trafficking, working with young lives that are being rescued. And now I'm a colleague. And right. that was just the wow. biggest thrill for me that they refer to me as Brian and they are now colleagues in the battle against modern day slavery. So, it's, wow. it's thrilling too. There, yeah. There's plenty of ups and downs. Yeah, I can only imagine just, well, even in that initial stage when, you know, you get them from the airport, just even having that sense of knowing that you are people that they can trust and there is a bright future ahead. I can't imagine how rewarding that is, even though they don't see it right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that sense where they're still terrified, but you're kind of, yeah, you're absolutely right. They're, you know, your kind of internal voice is kind of going, okay, you, you don't realize this, but you are actually safe. You're actually yeah. free. And there's a thrill in that. Uh, so, we're, we're given a privilege to, to do wonderful work in that way. That's so awesome. And how involved is the Cambodian government? I imagine, as you kind of outlined, the country has become a hotspot for many reasons and probably largely to the civil war, making it a vulnerable place. But now, is the government taking their own initiatives to bring their women back or how aware are they of this situation and how controlled is it on their end? Yeah, they're totally aware. I still don't think they're that well equipped. But we have seen a huge transformation in Cambodian government policies and policing regarding this. When it first started, I mean, there was not there was no assistance at all. There was no social services. The police are notoriously corrupt and were involved in a lot of this kind of activity. But you know, hats off to them. They have really stepped up to the plate. And in this past 12 years, there are police units that have completely transformed, that are showing initiative, that are coming to us with files they've discovered that are doing reasonably solid investigations on a diplomatic front. The Cambodian government is very actively working to develop bilateral negotiations. We've been privileged to participate in those as well, but to develop agreements so that you can, as a, as a young woman, let's say, get out of China. Because when you're in China, once they've destroyed your passport and your visa, whether they were faked or not by the traffickers is irrelevant. You now have nothing. So if you escape, and you're clearly not Chinese and you've no papers, they'll put you in prison because you're now illegal. So that's a whole legal process. You have to give them some kind of legal legitimacy. The Cambodian government has worked very hard to develop uh, agreements with China and with other countries uh, so that we can now get temporary papers to get them back. And there are senior officials in the Cambodian government that are just working day and night on this and we're thrilled to work with them. I'm shocked and thrilled that they have come so far with this in, in such a such a short time with a country really lacking resources. I mean, it's it's still a, a country that has huge challenges and yet they're stepping up. Yeah, that's really huge. And hopefully an example for neighboring countries as well yes. where that's kind of a hot spot. But I think the most important thing for us all to realize is this is very, very real. And this is not something that's just external. I actually don't make a distinction between international human trafficking and domestic human trafficking. It is all one honking great big trade. And they cross borders and sometimes they don't cross borders and it doesn't matter. It's the same form of abuse. In a Canadian context, disproportionately, we have young First Nations women that are trafficked. I actually don't make a distinction between prostitution and trafficking. It is very clear that the vast, vast majority of young women being prostituted are there unwillingly and have been manipulated by circumstances of their lives into that. And that's a higher, much higher percentage of First Nations than, than other categories of young women. So they're very, very vulnerable. And we have a job to do in Canada in terms of dealing with that. 
in terms of international trafficking into Canada, yeah, that absolutely goes on. In a um, lower mainland Vancouver, greater Vancouver context, I'm aware of files from China, from Macau, from Hong Kong, where girls have been manipulated into debt, sometimes quite well-off girls, uh, manipulated into debt in the casinos in Macau, etc. And then once they're in debt, these wonderful, helpful guys in Macau will be able to provide you a job in China where you can pay off your debt and they don't tell their parents what's happened to them because they've blown a lot of money gambling. And so obviously these guys get them this wonderful job in Canada in a massage parlor, whatever else. It's absolutely trafficking. It's absolutely abusive. It's criminal. So that kind of stuff goes on not far from our office here. We've had Korean schoolgirls turn up being pimped out of uh, an apartment and they're here on a student visa. I mean, <laughs> you know, the profit margins are so massive in human trafficking that this is not going to go away anytime soon. I mean, if you go to the trouble of taking the risks of smuggling some cocaine across an international border, you get to sell that product once. And if that product is discovered, it's fairly easily recognized. Humans, whether they're legitimate travelers or illegitimate travelers, are hard to recognize. They all look the same. And so you get to bring your quote-unquote product of a young woman across an international boundary. She looks like all the other young women coming across the border. But once you've got her wherever you want her, you can then sell her over and over and over and over again. And I mean, the profit margins are huge. So this is something we need to recognize that it is all around us. And I, I would encourage anybody listening to this to take very seriously their attitudes in terms of seeing prostituted women and view them with compassion and view them as real human beings. They are not these stupid girls trying to make a quick buck. They are manipulated and their behaviors that are so jarring sometimes in terms of them kind of being obnoxious and in your face wanting to turn a trick, that is evidence of abuse because a normal young woman will never be that bold or that obnoxious. That's because she's under the gun. You do as you're told, you make enough money for the pimp or you're going to get thumped. And so it's absolutely tragic and we need to have a totally different response as a society to prostituted women, in my opinion. At this point in time, there's more people enslaved than there were in the transatlantic slave trade. And I think that's also something that's overlooked because we see them as two different things, but there's people that are in labor slavery and in sexual slavery, and it's not an issue that's talked about enough. And I'm wondering from your perspective, as people that are somewhat far removed from it, and maybe we're not as far removed as we think, what are things that we can do to be involved here in Canada, here in a place of privilege, as we learn about these horrific stories and want to dive deeper, what some actions we can take? Well, I think it, learning about it domestically, one of the places I'd go to is the Joy Smith Foundation. Joy Smith is an ex-member of parliament who introduced uh, great legislation on human trafficking. I had the privilege of working with her for quite a few years. So she runs a foundation now and that's basically almost like a clearinghouse if you want education on what's actually going on, she can really help. So that's online, Joy Smith Foundation. If you're interested in international stuff, by all means, look up Ratanak International, what we do, R-A-T-A-N-A-K, Ratanak International, and just start learning it. The one thing I would encourage people to do is not reinvent the wheel. So often when we start to learn about this stuff, it's pretty emotive. It's pretty powerful. Slavery is a powerful mm -hmm. thing. And there's yeah. so many people that, that want to jump in and they're running in circles trying to develop their own organizations and, and their own projects. There's a time and a place for that. But for the most people who just want to engage, find an organization already doing it because the skills are already developed. You don't actually have to reinvent the wheel. There's people both domestically and internationally who are really good at working on these files, working on rescuing lives, on rehabilitating uh, young women and young men that are abused, doing counseling with them, doing job skills training, inoculating them from future trafficking. 
giving them uh, self-esteem that's been torn away from them. There's plenty of people good at doing that. There's uh, people good on the investigation side as well. All those organizations are in place. So I would encourage people to do online searching and actually figure out an organization they want to plug in with because that's the most efficient way of impacting this. Thank you for tuning in to this special feature episode of Anti-Culture. Although difficult to hear, this type of information is important to shed light on, and I will continue to do so as a journalist. I would encourage you to reach out to these organizations if this message touched your heart and be a catalyst for a change where you are. Chances are it's happening in your city as well. If you are especially touched by this content, I would also encourage you to contact me for more information on The Walk for Calgary-based opportunities to learn about how undercover massage parlors work and how to detect them in your own city. You can also learn more about Ratanak's involvement in Cambodia by visiting their website at ratanak.org. That's R-A-T-A-N-A-K.org. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this episode. So please send me a message at Josiah Podcast on all social media. I'm definitely available if this is something that touched your heart in a deeper way to continue the discussion. Until next week, I'm Josiah Sinanen, and thank you for listening to Anti-Culture. I hope to continue delivering messages like this in the future. So if you'd like to support my future work, you can also consider becoming a patron on patreon.com slash Josiah podcast. Anticulture is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. We'll see you next week.